Hey everyone, Jeff Kasouf here with another episode of Kicking Back, and this time we are recapping the quarterfinals of the Olympic Women's Soccer Tournament, Tokyo Olympics. We have our semifinalists after four relentless games in the quarterfinals on Friday, Friday morning if you were in the U.S. A lot of overlap in those games, a lot of goals, a lot of chaos, two PK shootouts, and an additional game in extra time. So plenty to talk about here, as always, and we're going to start with the United States defeating, or I should say advancing to the semifinals over the Netherlands in a penalty kick shootout 2-2 after 120 minutes, and uh, the U.S. advances 4-2 in the shootout. All four kick takers for the U.S. convert, and Alyssa Nair, goalkeeper Alyssa Nair, saves two Dutch penalty kicks from the spot in that shootout, uh, plays heroic. She also saved a penalty kick in regulation to even get the U.S. to extra time. So plenty to talk about there. We'll quickly go over the scores and also break down some of those uh, those three other games of, of the quarterfinals as well. But uh, the U.S. advancing over the Netherlands on penalty kicks. We also had a shootout uh, for their opponent in the semifinals now with Canada uh, Canada advancing over Brazil 4-3 in that shootout after a nil-nil game. A lot less exciting than the 2-2 U.S.-Netherlands game in regulation and from open play. But Canada advancing over Brazil in a shootout, which means we get a USA-Canada semifinal. Like it's 2012 again. I'm sure you will hear all about 2012 for the next three days. And if we're lucky to get anything even half as wild or entertaining um, and I know anybody from Canada listening to this is probably not as amused uh, still with that result from 2012, but anything half as entertaining, we'll be talking about this semifinal for a long time as well with this rivalry. So Canada advances over Brazil. Australia advances over Great Britain, 4-3 to three in extra time, wild game. We'll talk about the specifics there, but Australia is into their first semifinal at a major world tournament, and they will play Sweden, who advanced pretty comfortably over host Japan, and I would say probably still look like the team to beat uh, among the final four here you know, heading into Monday's semifinals. So first, let's talk about USA-Netherlands and that quarterfinal. So there's a lot here. I think that's a given. It's a Olympics. It's an Olympics quarterfinal, a major tournament, and a rematch of the 2019 World Cup final. So this was certainly from an American point of view, obviously, and from a Dutch point of view, the game that was circled uh, on the calendar on the table there, but you know, I think that even as a neutral 2019 World Cup semifinal or World Cup final rematch, two years later here, uh, two of the top teams in the world, obviously, this was the one to watch. It was the late kickoff, the 7 a.m. Eastern in the U.S., which uh, was probably helpful for for plenty of folks, at least on the East Coast, and it did not disappoint. The U.S. jumped out to a promising early start. Actually went behind though as Vivian Miedema scored in the 18th minute to put uh, the Dutch ahead, which was really against the run of play. And then the U.S. comes back and answers relatively quickly in the first half there with Sam Mewis with a goal provided assist by Lynn Williams. And then three minutes after that, Lynn Williams gets on the score sheet. So goal and an assist for Lynn Williams in an Olympic quarterfinal amazing story in itself and obviously rewind it back rewind it a little bit Lynn Williams starting so first start 
in a major tournament at this Olympic. She had played off the bench briefly against uh, Australia in uh, in the group stage. But Vlako Nanovsky, U.S. coach, goes with, I would say, a relatively surprising lineup in a vacuum is, is the term I used in, in my analysis piece on EqualizerSoccer.com. But, you know, when you look at what he wanted to do, what needed to be done, and then I actually asked, uh, virtually anyway, asked about the lineup decisions post-game, and he gave a very long, thoughtful answer about matchups, both individually and uh, team matchups stylistically, looking ahead to potentially extra time, penalty kicks, and even ahead to the semifinals, potentially. Um, that all went into his decision-making for this lineup. So if you need the catch-up, the big thing, the front three was Carly Lloyd in the number nine with Tobin Heath and Lynn Williams on the wings, and Rose Lavelle did not start. It was Lindsey Horan in the 10 instead. Those were pretty significant decisions. I think you could say fairly somewhat surprising. But the U.S., we have not seen them press yet in this tournament the way that we know that they can, the way that they've had so much success doing previously under Jill Ellis and and up until now under Vleko Anonofsky for the past two years. Really haven't seen them press high on teams yet in this tournament up until this Netherlands game. That lineup right away, as soon as you see Williams in it and you see Heath, you see Lloyd, it sends that message of, yes, they are going to sit higher, much higher than they have had thus far in the group stage. And they did exactly that early in the match. I think you look, if, if you're Vlako Nanovsky, you look at this game, this first 15 minutes or so, it's going well, it looks promising. You're getting the Dutch, um, you're putting the Dutch under pressure in high points on the field. You're finding success in wide areas, even before the goal and the assist. Lynn Williams getting isolated out on that, what was the U.S.'s right wing, finding success, finding 1v1 matchups. You know, you want her faced up 1v1, and and if you're the Dutch, you certainly don't want that. So I think there was early success, and then 18 minutes in, Vivian Miedema finds a little bit of space in the box. It's, again, some defensive issues from the U.S., which are highlighted on this play, but they've been consistent to a degree throughout the tournament, and we saw them at other other points in this game, specifically in the second half and an extra time when the Dutch really poured on some pressure on the U.S., and it looked like the Americans were on the ropes a little bit, and obviously 81st minute Alyssa Nair has to save a PK just to get the U.S. to extra time. So, But that 18th minute service comes in, Miedema finds... She's got her back to goal, finds just a little bit of space. I'm not sure in a couple of scenarios here why there was so much space. And part of that, again, Abby Dahlkemper, about 12 yards out, has actually backed off and given Midema two or three yards, roughly, and and actually looks to almost guess at which way Midema is going to try to snap turn for the shot. And Dahlkemper moves to her right. Uh, Midema turns and spins the other way, fires the shot basically to, to Dal Kemper's left on her right foot. And it's 1-0 Netherlands. And it's really, uh, it's essentially Miedema's first action in the game, first interaction uh, in any significant way and, and almost their first touch. So um, it's really unfortunate from, from a U.S. perspective. It's a little bit indicative of some defensive issues. And I think we saw that again 
on her second goal, which was her 10th of the tournament, breaks an individual record. The Dutch exit this tournament with 23 goals. That's an individual, excuse me, a single tournament record for the Olympics, 23 goals uh, in four games there. So, you know, successful group stage, obviously. I talked about this on the previous pod, recapping the last group stage games. You know, Netherlands leaves this tournament exiting in the quarterfinals, 23 goals scored, 10 goals given up. So uh, I think certainly you look at that 10 and and you're – Thinking about that, it won't be Serena Vegman, obviously. She's moving on to England, but uh, Mark Parsons, actually, um, I'm sure is watching some games and, and uh, is focused on Portland, but will be taking some notes and, and has some things to figure out come uh, end of 2021 here. But, you know, the U.S., they get that high pressure. And then eventually, obviously, shortly after this, 10 minutes after that medium opener, Sam Mewis scores. It's, again, balls worked out wide. To Lynn Williams, she gets isolated. She cuts back, serves the ball into the box, right into the, uh, mostly right into the onrushing path uh, of Sam Mewis. Again, probably helps here that she is the tallest player on the field because she uh, she executes a, a brilliant diving header to score there and, and get the U.S. level. And then three minutes later, it's Williams cleaning up a rebound, uh, a loose ball in the box on a corner kick. So, you know, there at that point, I think you're very happy, you know, if you're the U.S., you're unhappy that you gave up that opener, obviously, but things are working. You've bounced back from that goal conceded to be up 2-1, and first half in particular, you know, everything going as planned, I would say, if you're Vlakononovsky, if you're the U.S., and then not too long into that second half, we see the changes. So 57th minute is a triple sub. Alex Morgan, Kristen Press, Rose Lavelle, come on. Carly Lloyd, Lynn Williams, Sam Ewis off. So part of that answer, which I asked Flacco Nanofsky about post-game, he said, I specifically asked why that starting three and why not Rose Lavelle uh, in the starting lineup. And he said part of it was looking at the matchups that the Dutch offered, what they can do. Part of it was individual matchups and what specifically the U.S. wanted to do, which um, he didn't say specifically, but certainly from the game plan, from his answer, you can infer and conclude it was a higher defensive pressure, more defensive work rate. Um, And I think Julie Foudy touched on that on the broadcast, actually, anyway, from a pregame call that they had with Anonofsky. But you look at that, they come on, and, and he said also, you know, this was also about thinking about if we needed extra time, if we had to go to extra time, and thinking about whether uh, there would be penalty kicks. And that substitution, that triple sub came three minutes after Minima's second, which was the equalizer, made the game 2-2. So, um, you know, I think worth addressing here briefly, uh, not to go on a, a long monologue here, but, you know, I've seen the reaction to... This quote specifically, since I, I tweeted it out, um, and I, I've seen it sort of throughout the tournament, you know, you can both acknowledge that, and I, I will acknowledge both of these things being true, that I don't think the U.S. has looked exceptional in this tournament. They've certainly struggled at tournament at, at times in the tournament, and, you know, frankly, against Sweden looked very bad, and we've talked about that. I think the strongest statement we've heard actually was, Anonofsky, after this game, after the Netherlands game, asked about bouncing back from Sweden. 
uh, at one point in that answer said we got our butt kicked against Sweden. And he said he was proud of how his team has responded. So, yes, absolutely, that happened against Sweden. New Zealand then, a tough game to judge. And then came the, you know, a lot of the criticism of what the U.S. did against Australia, which I've said, if you stop and listen to why the U.S. did that, and you actually listen to it from Ananovsky, from the players, it's completely logical, makes sense, sets you up for this quarterfinal. And as I said on Tuesday, if the U.S. goes and advances and wins against the Netherlands in this quarterfinal, nobody cares about the Australia game. And guess what? We're already talking about the Netherlands, and, and we've got a similar narrative here. But the U.S. is in a semifinal now. So is Australia on the other side. So everything worked out for both of those teams in how they approached that game. And yes, that is a retrospective view. But for me, the point being... Um, both that, which there was a heavy criticism of the approach of that to that Australia game, and there's also been a pretty significant reaction I've seen even to the idea of um, that Ananovsky would have planned for this, that he would have planned for how he wanted to start the game, why he took off who he did in the 57th, and then even a few minutes later, you know, with Tobin Heath coming off, Megan Rapino coming on, and setting himself up for potentially extra time, potentially penalty kicks. And he even acknowledged having a little bit of an eye on what's next with the confidence, I guess, being the term that you are going to advance to a semifinal and you need to perform in a semifinal. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's really easy to sit here from afar, some of us from thousands of miles away and say, that's ridiculous, right? Why? Why should we believe that that's the case? But my response to that is, why should we not? I mean, this is a very detailed answer from a meticulous manager who, up until this point, has been rightfully so praised for his management, his ability to break down games, think about games in different ways. And suddenly he is doing that in in a way that's maybe um, slightly different than we've seen the U.S. operate Again, acknowledging that they have underperformed in games at this tournament, uh, particularly the Sweden game, I think should be specified. But we're seeing that in action. He's explaining exactly what he's thinking. And, you know, to his point, the four players that came off the bench in that short window, which he said were inserted into the game with a thought for extra time, a thought for penalties, looking ahead and trying to obviously trying to win the game before penalty kicks or even before extra time. Those four took the penalty kicks in the shootout that the U.S. advanced in, all four made it. So he's literally telling us this. It played out, and there seems to be a reaction that we somehow shouldn't believe that that's the case and it was pure luck. And I mean, that's ridiculous to me. And I think if we've learned anything at this Olympics, all of this talk, you know, and rightfully so, this talk about uh, mental health, and I think it, it kind of dovetails into the idea, um, that topic, part of that topic and understanding it is that we don't necessarily know people when we think we do. We don't know what's in their mind. So when somebody's telling us exactly what was in their mind, and that's the coach, that is players in the past few days have explained the Australia game and how they're thinking, when people are actually telling us what is in their head in detail, uh, yes, from a journalist standpoint, I mean, we need to be uh, thinking critically and, and to some degree with anything, with news, anything, be skeptical of it and, and uh, 
um, at least confirm like, okay, this checks out. But assuming that it does, which again, laying everything out here, it does. It's absurd to me that we would be um, just tossing it aside as as irrelevant or, you know, as some kind of a, a lie or something. I mean, it's absurd to me. So um, again, that's acknowledging that Sweden, terrible performance from the U.S. Defensive issues absolutely remain. I think there's a question there at center back still. Does Tierna Davidson maybe get the start along Becky Sauerbrunn in the semifinal against Canada? I think it's a question that's probably going to come up somewhere internally. I don't know what the answer is going to be, but defensively there have still been issues. The Netherlands in that second half and an extra time, a lot of pressure on the U.S. Obviously it led to that penalty kick, which Alyssa Nair saved in the 81st minute. And, you know, there was a VAR decision that plenty of our decisions, VAR decisions that went against the U.S., all of them were correct calls. Also a VAR decision that went against the Netherlands on a potential would-be winner there, you know. So, yes, you can look at this and say, hey, it almost didn't work. The U.S. bent. They almost broke. Arguably, you know, they did. And they got bailed out by a save on a penalty kick. All of those things are true. But... This is also knockout soccer, and it also eventually worked out. Fine margins, something in there goes different, and it doesn't work out, and we're sitting here saying, well, you know, easy to say we were doing X, Y, Z, and it didn't work out, and obviously, you know, the plan didn't work here, all these things, very fine margins, but, you know, somebody is presenting to you, or many people, a full team is presenting to you exactly what is happening I find it a little bit crazy, and this is just the reality of a major tournament all the time. There are narratives, there's a ton of extra media attention, but um, to immediately flip around and think that that somehow uh, is is not true for some reason, or, or we shouldn't trust the fact that they are giving us a bit of a, a peek behind the curtain uh, is a little bit crazy to me. So, um, you know, I'm sure that narrative is not going away against Canada. Um, and if the U.S. is not to win in that semifinal or win the gold medal period. And honestly, as Jill Ellis can probably attest to, even if they win, um, at least from a World Cup perspective, she can, even if they win, there will be these questions that, that linger. Um, but, you know, I think it's it's worth pointing out. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens uh, against Canada. I don't think Canada comes into this game particularly playing well either. You know, the nil-nil draw against Brazil. They've given up two late equalizers, as we've talked about on this pod, one against Japan, who really hasn't been impressive, one against Great Britain. Uh, both of those teams are out now. So, um, you know, I think it'll be an interesting matchup. It always is with U.S.-Canada. It's always um, a physical match. I hope it's not one of the uh, overly physical matches that we sometimes see these teams play. And, you know, obviously that is a little bit part of the the 2012 story as well. So very interested to see that one, uh, you know, in action. And um, Canada, you know, two times here, back-to-back bronze medals, looking to improve that. Uh, they'll be playing for a medal of some color, as the U.S. will, depending on how that semifinal goes. So keep an eye on, uh, just plug it quick, equalizersoccer.com, subscribe there. Uh, we'll have some previews up. We'll have we already have analysis of this U.S. win of uh, a couple other games from the quarterfinals, and we'll have plenty leading into and coming out of the semifinals. Going to take a quick break and come back and quickly talk about the other four, the other three quarterfinals, and look ahead to the other semifinal.
Jeff Kasouf here, back on Kicking Back. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast, uh, part of the Equalizer. You can check us out at equalizersoccer.com. Go ahead and subscribe for all of our premium content and perks like we give away things like NWSL trading cards to subscribers just because. So please go check us out there. And uh, we're on Blue Wire, Blue Wire Network of podcasts. Excited to be on that. And um, you can join Blue Wire too on Blue Wire Hustle, it's called. Um, So check that out to potentially start your own podcast if you're thinking about it. So here recapping the quarterfinals of the Olympic women's soccer tournament, the Tokyo Olympics, and we just talked in great depth about the U.S. advancing over the Netherlands in a shootout after a 2-2 draw through 120 minutes. Want to talk about the three other quarterfinals, look ahead to the semifinals a little bit. The other, I would say, most exciting game of the quarterfinals Probably the most exciting game from a pure entertainment standpoint, and obviously people love goals, the goals standpoint. Australia, 4-3 winners over Great Britain. Uh, Great Britain, I know, heartbroken. Uh, Head coach Hege Risa, who is the interim head coach for all intents and purposes of of England and Great Britain. Um, Great Britain, an interim team in in terms of competition in in football, but... um, said uh, devastated, I think was the word she used twice in a short manner of time in the post-game press conference. Ellen White scores a hat trick in this game, and it's not enough. 4-3 winners, Australia, and Sam Kerr with two of those. Sam Kerr rescues Australia with an 89th-minute equalizer. Great Britain was winning 2-1. Kerr equalizes in the 89th and then gets them the extra time. Mary Fowler, the 18-year-old, puts Australia ahead right before the extra time break, two minutes before in the 103rd minute, and uh, a wicked deflection that went top corner, you know, a bit unlucky for Great Britain, given that that huge deflection, but uh, a big moment for her. And then Kerr, about 17 seconds after the kickoff to start the second half of extra time, scores to make it 4-2. And uh, White kind of claws Great Britain back in the 115th minute, gives them a shot uh, as they press for another equalizer. Uh, in those final five minutes or so, but Australia holds on, and Australia is in a semifinal for the first time ever at a World Cup or Olympics, and that means they'll be playing for a medal, a common phrase here, but all four teams left will be playing for a medal of some kind here next week, so big moment for Australia, co-host of the 2023 World Cup, you know, I think a team that has been looking for some kind of momentum. I mean, you look at the results that Australia has had over this spring these past few months, and for them to be in a semifinal, I think is already playing with house money, to be frank. They've looked better at this Olympics. They've looked more disciplined, you know, than they did certainly in some of those spring results. I mean, there were some ugly score lines, not just the scores, but how they were playing, how they were getting opened up defensively. And, you know, 4-3 is not exactly a, a game that might inject confidence in defending, but, you know, Australia finding a way to get it done you know, uh, and, and that means actually uh, we'll get to the other results, but uh, another team, three of the four semifinalists from Group G, Australia, Sweden, USA. So tells you a little bit about what Group G had going on in terms of uh, level of difficulty, I think. But, um, you know, look, Sam Kerr, I, I think you, you look at Ellen White carrying Great Britain through this tournament, really through the entire tournament, and Sam Kerr sort of doing that for Australia is, is nothing necessarily new. Um, You know, Tony Gustafsson has played with the tactics a little bit uh, from game to game here and has obviously had to play with them based on those spring results that I mentioned. 
but uh, went with a three back, which, you know, I, I tweeted this. I think it's interesting to, to be seeing Ellie Carpenter in that role because she's such a good fullback, really wingback even. So to be playing in a system with wingbacks and not actually have her as a wingback in it is, is quite interesting. But, you know, I get it in some ways. Her pace actually makes up for the lack of it with the other two center backs um, and, and just kind of the the central area of the field in general there for, for Australia. So um, it's an interesting tactical development. You know, does it work uh, against Sweden? Well, evidence from the group stage says no, because we've seen this matchup. This is going to be a rematch of um, the group stage, and we actually potentially have two rematches on tap still if the U.S. is to advance uh, and play either of these teams. It would be another Group G rematch, would be, which would be quite quite a plot. But, um, you know, Sam Kerr, uh, I think it, it gets hard to sort of come up with new superlatives for her and what she's done. She was asked post-game about what it meant to Australia to finally, and to her, to finally be at this stage of a tournament. And, um, you know, she kind of, deferred a little bit uh, on the question and, and just um, more so said that she wanted to, enjoy, you know, kind of the um, the typical kind of enjoy the moment sort of uh, of uh, answer of sorts. But big, big win for Australia. Heartbreaking for Great Britain. I've seen some of the quotes post game from Ellen White about uh, maybe just needing to take a couple of weeks to, to step back and process it and, and feeling a bit beaten up by, you know, she in particular must be, uh, well, back to not assuming what people are thinking. I mean, she's told us that she needs to step back a little bit and and process it. And, you know, for her to score twice in quick succession, Great Britain's within a couple minutes, really, with stoppage time of being in a semifinal and then the Kerr equalizer and, and you know, Ellen White scoring three times before that in, in the group stage and you know, it's it's got to be tough to swallow for everybody. I would assume her as well, you know, given how much she did there and, and a hat trick. To score a hat trick in a Olympic in an Olympic quarterfinal and be on the losing side is, is tough. Um, but I guess not unprecedented to, to some of the other games that we've been talking about on this podcast. So um, Australia advances 4-3 over Great Britain. And they will play Sweden, as I mentioned, which is a rematch of the group stage um, in Group G, which Sweden won pretty comfortably uh, against Australia. I don't think, you know, I think Sweden has been the team to beat in this tournament. And uh, a 4-2 result in the group stage for Sweden, again, pretty comfortable. But on the day, also a comfortable result uh, on the quarterfinal day for Sweden, 3-1 to over Japan. Japan actually... Made this a little bit interesting in, in the first half. You know, Magdalena Eriksson scores seven minutes in, and Sweden looks like they're rolling. And uh, 23rd minute, Mina Tanaka uh, scores the equalizer for Japan. And they kind of hold steady there. They get into the break. And uh, then Stina Blackstinia scores again. Uh, you know, a couple of players here, including her, have been red hot for Sweden. And then again, adding to that list, Kosovar Aslani uh, finishes from the penalty spot, 68th minute to add a little insurance goal for Sweden. And they advanced 3-1 to one over Japan. You know, heartbreak for Japan, but really nothing surprising here. Sweden has been very good. I think you'd say going into the semifinal stage, the favorites, they were before this, I think, even, but, but have only kind of solidified that, I would say, among the four that are left. And 
Japan came into this game struggling uh, is probably fair, maybe a little bit harsh, but really not convincing is maybe the best way to put it. And and they weren't on the day. You know, quarterfinal exit I think is is a fair result for Japan. I don't think it's harsh on them, and uh, it's it's a little bit back to the drawing board for a team that really reworked and reshaped itself over the past two, two, three years and um, had this home Olympics circled on the calendar very obviously, but really wanted to make a statement at this Olympics and did not in any way. So 2023 is next up as as the World Cup looms there in Australia and New Zealand. And we'll see what Japan looks like. Obviously, you know, in the previous decade, a great run that, that started with the 2011, miraculous 2011 World Cup uh, victory, and then um, 20, 2012 uh, silver medal in the Olympics, 2015 World Cup final. And, you know, I, I think this is, that, that gave us the impression that Japan was maybe here to stay. And obviously, look, a top five to 10 team in the world, obviously, but as of late here, they haven't felt like a real challenger contender for a World Cup title or a gold medal, in the, at least in these past two major tournaments. And, and we'll see about going forward. But Sweden, Sweden looking very good. They always look good, but a little bit extra in this tournament, not necessarily as, as rigid, uh, a little bit more free-flowing, a lot better offensively, I think, a lot more creative offensively. And that's that extra piece uh, for Sweden there that maybe hasn't always been there in the past and we're seeing. So I, I really like Sweden, certainly against Australia, and at this point, certainly against Canada. And once again, I think, I think you'd have to say against the U.S. based on, uh, again, the group stage. So that was the, the other quarterfinal. And then the, the first of the four quarterfinals to play out. If you were watching along with these, got to be frustrating. I know it was for me to have so much overlap. They were scheduled an hour and apart to begin with, uh, an hour apart to begin with. And, you know, then we've got extra time penalty kicks and, and at multiple points, three games running at once, which was chaos to keep up with, obviously, especially at that hour for some of us. But um, Canada nil-nil with Brazil was that fourth, uh, that quarterfinal we haven't yet really spoken about. Spoke about Canada a little bit here. Um, you know, I think the big thing on the other side, though, Brazil, they miss this. They miss a, an opportunity to be in the semifinals here, play for a medal. I really liked Brazil coming into this tournament, similar to what I just said about Sweden, uh, but sort of in reverse. Brazil has always had that technical ability, that individual ability, individual talent. Maybe hasn't always had it put together perfectly. Sometimes it's been... Marta, Cristiani, Formiga, you know, maybe you can make that argument even back to a CC and, you know, that there was that talent, there were those stars, but the supporting cast wasn't always there. And maybe that included even the coaching at times that the tactics weren't quite there. And you felt like, I really felt like it had all kind of put together here with Pearson Haga in charge injecting defensive discipline, some tactical nuance, some real belief and and some joy in this team that maybe they had lost a little bit in some recent era, certainly under the late Vidal. And I thought that this was maybe a chance for Brazil to prevail here. And you know what? They looked good for, for large stretches of this game, uh, certainly in the middle third against Canada. And 
they couldn't finish. I mean, that's going to be something that haunts any team. I think it'll haunt Brazil. Unfortunately, I think this is... I never want to count out Formiga. 43 years old, has now played in seven, all seven Olympics to feature women's soccer. But at 43, I don't think she's... Uh, it's a it's a shorter turnaround given the pandemic delay, but three years from now, I don't I don't know that she's playing. I, I don't want to bet against her at 46, playing in another Olympics. But um, Marta, similar conversation. Was this her last Olympics? You know, it, it seems like it would have been, but maybe you use the Formiga example. You know, playing though she's 43, if Marta's still playing in three years, which I could certainly see that at a club level. Uh, you, I think you could say, well, if she's playing at a club level, she's playing, period, if she's active. Um, if you're Brazil, she's still your go-to, you know, you're still you're still calling her up, you're still featuring her, you're, maybe she's still your captain. I don't know. Speculative, but this really was an opportunity for, for Miga, Marta, and, you know, um, all of Brazil, obviously, uh, to do something here. Nine shots, four on target, you know, Felt like it was just always a little bit off. Dabinia had some chances in this game. And uh, Tamirez, I thought, did well getting up to left flank to, to provide service. And just that quality in the final third, really inside the 18, wasn't there. Um, Canada, I think, you know, got bailed out a bit. I, I think there's probably going to be some focus on some good defending from Canada. Yes, good 1v1 last-stitch tackle defending, but I think... This is a point you can make with the U.S. right now even and, and in previous tournaments, 2015 even to a degree, you know, some of that. Okay, you see that last-ditch tackle and, and you're amazed by how great that perfect time tackle was, but why did it happen is is another question that, that needs to be addressed. And, you know, I think there, there were breakdowns and there have been breakdowns for Canada that that lead to that being exposed to, to needing to make a tackle like that. So... That's obviously something to watch uh, against the U.S. Ha, you know, I think Canada's done well enough here. Um, maybe like Australia has punched a little bit above its weight or is playing with house money at this point because as much as Canada wants to be a, a gold medal contender and is now in an Olympic semifinal for the third straight tournament, um, you know, I don't know that you look at talent for talent, some of these other teams, Brazil being one of them included, I don't, you know, I think talent for talent and, and just where they are in form, I would have liked Brazil here. And uh, that's why they play the game, I guess, nil-nil through 120 minutes and then a penalty kick shootout, which um, I should say, much like Alyssa Nair, Steph LeBay saving PK kicks number four and five from Brazil uh, to seal this for Canada. Amazing dis display from her. Um, you know, she... She had the rib injury in the opening game. Um, you know, she she was, I felt like at multiple points in this game was uh, really down uh, on the ground, injured. Uh, you know, again, kind of a question of was she okay? Could, is she okay to continue? And then even, you know, getting into a penalty kick shootout, like what, uh, what where is she at physically even? Uh, was probably a fair question, and she comes up with two PK saves in the shootout. I think really uh, amazing stuff from her, and so good day for North American goalkeepers, I guess, Steph LeBay and uh, Alyssa Nair, each with um, with penalty kick, two two penalty kick saves in the shootout, uh, in their respective shootouts, so 
Uh, big stuff there from Steph LeBay, uh, heroic stuff from her from Nair in the other shootout. And now they get to face each other in the semifinal. And, you know, we'll see. I think defensive questions for both teams, Canada and the U.S., and then you start to look through the midfield. I, I would favor a U.S. midfield still in that matchup, certainly, but, um, you know, I don't think it's been the exact strongest U.S. midfield that maybe we expected it to be, given how it's performed, given how that trio or those four players in the three positions have performed previously. And on the front line, I certainly I do like uh, the U.S. player for player if you're comparing front lines. But, you know, look, uh, we will see 2012 reference. We will see the U.S. record against Canada reference. Canada has not beaten the U.S. in 20 years. That 2012 game is part of that. And, you know, all these things are great, but uh, I, I love to quote the, the Herm Edwards quote every once in a while. You know, you play to win the game. And also that's why they play the game. So we'll see. Um, you know, anything can go here in, in an Olympic semifinal, particularly in a rivalry game like this. And I think we're in for a physical grudge match, grudge match hopefully not a bloodbath type of game as the two, these two teams can play sometimes, but uh, going to be very interesting. So 4 a.m. Eastern is USA-Canada. As of now, I've seen some chatter of people saying it would make sense for these games to be flipped based on local time zones for all of these teams. I don't disagree, but I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, that's, that's all speculation at the moment as of this recording, but 4 a.m. Eastern is Canada-USA on Monday. So that's Monday, 4 a.m. Eastern. That is for a lot of you, your Sunday overnight, if you're planning on when or if to wake up. And then 7 a.m. Eastern on Monday is Sweden-Australia in that second semifinal. Looking forward to it. Semifinals. And then a week from now, we'll, we will have uh, the full podium and an Olympic gold medalist. So we'll see who it is. Let me know who you think it'll be. Share it on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Kasouf. We're at Equalizer Soccer. And we'll be back after those semifinals for another recap of what's going on at the Olympics in women's soccer.